The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Good evening. It's good to have you here tonight. When I was 22 years old, a teacher from Fallbrook High School invited me to church. It was one of those situations where I, I didn't know him well, and um, we had met at a meeting, and he said, um, Danny, I want to invite you to church. We meet on Sunday morning. Now, immediately that represented a challenge for me because I work nights, and um, I knew that to get up early, getting up early um, would be difficult. The other challenge would be, and I don't think my wife's here tonight, so I can tell you this. Don't tell her that I said this is that I recognized that Sunday mornings would be the, were the only mornings Wanda and I had to sleep in. You know, sleep in, have a big breakfast, and enjoy the day together. Matter of fact, she was a beautician or a cosmetologist, and so she would work Saturdays. And I would work in the nighttime, come home, she would be asleep, she would leave in the morning, and so Sundays were very important to us. So I broached the subject very gently. I remember, like yesterday, she was washing the dishes and I was sweeping the floor. Our home was 900 square feet, one restroom, and so, you know, I helped out a little bit. If you want to think I helped out more than I really did, that's fine with me, too. And I, was, I remember saying, you know, dear, um, this fella invited me, us to church, and she said, well, I, I, you know, they're going, to be, they're, they're going to be judgmental of us and our lifestyle. And I said, well, um, what do you think about if we go one time? And if you don't like it, we'll never go back again. And so she said, okay, you know, I'll make a deal with you. Um, you need to know that that was uh, in June of 1978. And uh, we haven't missed many Sundays since then. But I need to tell you that when, when we went into the parking lot of this church in Fallbrook, so we lived in Vista, we went into the, it was a rented building. It wasn't a church building the way you would think of a church. And so we pull in, and I, I see people there. And I was a big guy. I was a construction worker, much stronger and bigger than I am now. But I remember that I was afraid. I was afraid that they would ask me questions. This might sound strange to you, but I was afraid they would ask me questions about the Bible I couldn't understand. And basically, they could have asked me any question about the Bible, and I wouldn't have been able to answer it. And so I remember going in. We went upstairs in this building, kind of followed the crowd, right? Children's ministry was down below, and, and we found our way into And I always sit on the end. I, I, maybe if there's a uh, counselor here, you can tell me why. I always sit on the end. I always want to have an easy escape, just in case, right? And so I remember sitting on the end, and then Wanda next to me, and a fella got up on a stool with a long beard, long hair, it's the late 70s, and he, he played it, you know, I've Got a River of Life, all the you know, big major hits from that time. And then I remember that when the pastor started teaching, I, I, didn't, I, didn't know, I didn't have church terminology. I didn't know that, well, this is the worship, and this is the offering, and these are the announcements, and this is the teaching, and then maybe they'll throw in an extra song at the end if you give enough in the offering. But anyways... I was afraid. It was hard for me to go to church. And let me tell you why, because I thought the people that were there were better than me. In my mind, they were good people, and in my mind, I was a bad person. 
And I would have told you that I was a bad person because I did really, really bad things. And, and yet over time, I, I had, I, I had a, a conversion experience by myself. Nobody like led me in a prayer or anything. But over time, Wanda and I began to feel more and more comfortable. They still didn't want anybody to ask us any questions. And that church became our family from 1978 till the year 2000. As a matter of fact, I became their youth pastor the last 12 years that I was there. You know, on the screen, you're going to see that the title of our Bible study tonight is Jesus, Friend of Sinners. That's just not a title on a sermon. That's a title that I live. Jesus became my friend. I grew up in a rough neighborhood, and like I, you know, I don't want to glamorize it in any way, but, but I wasn't one of the kids that went to church. Most of, the ki- most of my friends went to the Catholic church. I, I never went. My family didn't attend church. And some of my friends at school, again, not as close because they weren't in my neighborhood, but some of the guys at school went to uh, denominational churches. And, and interesting that as I look back, none of them were too crazy about inviting me to youth group, even though I wouldn't have known what youth group was. But, but when you hear the, the title, Jesus, Friend of Sinners, I want you to know that that means more to me than you could ever imagine. Because friendship is important to me. I have lifelong friends. Friendship is important to me. Loyalty is important to me. And so as we, as we consider Jesus friends of sinners, our takeaway tonight is, and this might rub some of you the wrong way, but it speaks to me. God did not give up on us you could say, God did not give up on, put your name in the, in, in the blank there. God did not give up on Danny, so Danny should not give up on others. God did not give up on you. God did not give up on me. And because that's true, because that's a reality, it speaks to us to not give up on other people. Um, in, in my neighborhood, this is hard for me to tell you, but as I would walk down the street, moms would come out and pull their kids away. Um, I was mean. And what they didn't know that I re- realize now is that behind me being mean was that I was hurting. And Jesus would come into my life, and it's been lifelong, and I continue on the process for sure. And he would begin to heal the pain in my life that made me say the things I said and do the things I did. But more importantly than anything else, he came to forgive me of my sins. Jesus, friend of sinners. Nice for a sermon title. It's even better if that's the motto of your life. So we're going to get into this, but before we do, I want you to know that next week, Pastor Jared Burke will come and he will teach the balance of the chapter, Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 28. Now, some people, as they look at the, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then also John as a standalone gospel, they believe that probably Matthew was one of the last disciples, and so there were 12 total, right? And we have early on, we have him calling the fishermen and, 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 and calling various disciples, and some some 
are all the way down at the Jordan following uh, John the Baptist. But, but some believe that Matthew was one of the last disciples to be called by Jew- Jesus. I want you to think about this. If this is the case, and you were one of the disciples that had already been selected, already been invited by Jesus to follow him, one can only imagine the stir that it would have caused in the group when Jesus, of all people, chose or selected a tax collector. You and I have tax collectors in our lives. We, well, I guess you do have the IRS, but we have those individuals or those people that when we look at them, when we listen to them, when we observe them, in our minds, we would never say it, but in our minds, we see it as almost an impossibility for them to come to know Christ. And if that's not the case with you, then I, I just pretty much revealed the black darkness of my own heart. The fact that Capernaum was Matthew's territory, so to speak, would have made this fact especially hard for the disciples who called it home. Because that would have made Levi or Matthew, that would have made him their tax collector. That is, they would have come to him and, and, and he would have measured out the amount of tax that Rome required, and yet he would be compensated on what he would charge you above and beyond. You would have been offended greatly at him taking your money. Think a Jew, he was Jew for sure, taking money from other Jews on behalf of pagan Rome. Think, too, that not only did Matthew extort money from his people, but his effort funded Rome's occupation of Israel. There's an account when, over a special occasion in Jerusalem, the Romans came in with these banners that that were honoring the emperor, and and there was a riot because, because the Jews recognized that the Romans worshipped the emperor and they believed that there was one God. And so there's this sensitivity already. And yet I'm going to give you money and the money's going to pay for the soldiers who require me to carry their, their pack. And so we, we see the situation here. Matthew's business would have come at a great personal loss for him. He would have, he was hated in his neighborhood or his community. He would have been excommunicated from Capernaum's synagogue. That is, he would have worshipped there until he took on this position, and then he would have been excused, maybe even thrown out physically. He would have been labeled by everyone as a sinner. Remember the title of our Bible study, Jesus, Friend of Sinners. His circle of friends would have been considered shady at least. In the minds of most, Matthew would not be a candidate to follow Jesus. In the minds of Jesus' disciples, Matthew would have not been selected to follow Jesus and to join their group, to become a part of the team. Yet, as we look back, listen, Matthew is an apostle. His gospel is a gift to the church. But Danny, what does it mean for us who are sitting here tonight as we consider the calling of Matthew? What does it mean for us? 
I, I think it helps us understand that God offers salvation to everyone. That there's not a person that you and I know, either intimately, closely, or at a distance, who is outside of the reach of God's grace. Let me say that again. There's no one that we know, regardless of what they've done, that is outside of the reach of God's grace. And at the conclusion, by the time we get done tonight, we will see that our greatest motivation to love these people is that God's grace reached me. God's grace reached you. God does not withhold redemption from people we might think are too far gone. True, not all people respond to Jesus' call, as we will see Levi do tonight. But when they do, we're reminded that God's love is limitless. It's also important to see that Matthew was no more lost than the most conscientious Pharisee. That's what this story draws out to us. That of all the religious people at that time, of all, all the people that the common people would have looked up to, would have considered and revered, that Matthew was no more lost than they were. There's a verse out of Timothy, I'm not sure if it's first or second, where Paul says, that calls himself the chief of sinners. It's, all, it's always amazed me that he would identify himself as the chief or the number one sinner. God doesn't give up on people, neither should we. You know, Jesus was accused by his enemies of associating with those on the fringe, even those who were outcasts. And on the screen you'll see Luke chapter 7, verse 34 where Jesus quotes what the religious community was saying about him. Just stop and think about that for a moment as, you, as, you, as we read this. Jesus was accused by the religious community, kind of tells you where they're at. Let me read this to you. The Son of Man, Luke 7:34. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. That's in contrast to John the Baptist. The Son of Man, that's a title Jesus uses about himself, has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors and sinners. And yet, if you were in eyes, we consider Jesus' resume, these are his references. Those who are outcasts, those who have been rejected by the religious community, listen, Jesus embraced. As we wrap up tonight, we'll see why he embraced them, why he drew near to them, why he would say to the woman at the, who was committed in the act of adultery, woman, it's interesting to me that he uses the word woman. It's the same word that he used for Mary at the wedding at Cana. Woman, where are your accusers? She lifts up her head. She looks a couple of feet away where he had been riding on the sand on the pavement. And she looks to Jesus and she said, Lord, there are none. Listen to what he tells her. Then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. On the screen you'll see a quote by Stephen Lee 
that says Jesus doesn't fit into any of our neat and tidy categories or tribes. I oftentimes see Jesus in the court of the Gentiles overturning tables and know that he is very good at overturning tables of my heart, preconceived ideas and thoughts. So anyways, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get into our Bible study. So Jesus, tonight, we watch you call a man to follow you. We consider that just like Levi, just like Matthew, same man, just like someone who was considered by the community as an outsider, as someone who was hated, that there are Levi's in our lives. And that it is your heart to invite them to follow you. And so, Lord, uh, please, tonight, use tonight, use this Bible study, this handful of verses. Use them to challenge us, to see people the way you do. So we have the Galilean ministry, the calling of Levi in verses 13 through 17. And it says, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them. Verse 14. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he, Levi, rose and followed him. You know, the term that Mark uses here when it says, again, he went out by the sea, tells us that possibly this is a habit of Jesus, that there would be those times, a break in the action, if you will, where he would go to be alone, where he would find himself in a place, obviously the Sea of Galilee is a beautiful place to find yourself, that he would go and find a place to be alone with his father that he would, listen, that he would put pause on ministry, that he would stop ministry, that he would stop church, that he would stop the worship service, that he would stop why he came, uh, stop doing what he came to do in order to be alone with the Father. He recognized that the primary thing for him was to be more like Mary and not like Martha. So then news spreads through the community that Jesus has returned. Jesus is local now, and the people, the picture here is the people streaming to be with him. And as they gather around him, he takes the scriptures, probably from from memory, and he begins to explain it to them. We've seen this multiple times already uh, early on in Mark's gospel. Do you know that it's the heart of God to explain the scriptures to you? remember my first day in church, I didn't understand anything that they were saying. You know, I I had a a paraphrased Bible. It was called the Living Bible. It had little stick figures in there, you know, the disciples with robes. And, you know, and I'm reading along, and I, I didn't really understand what they were saying. I didn't understand what they were trying to communicate. But I do remember this, that when I recognized that the pastor was beginning to wind up his sermon that there was something in me that longed for him to continue. I looked at my watch and I go, oh man, it feels like it's only been 10 minutes that he's been talking, but he had been talking for 45. You see, the word of God is unlike any other book in existence. And can you imagine sitting down with Jesus and having him teach? So in verse 14, There's a change of scenery. 
Jesus returns to Capernaum. It's interesting that when Matthew gives the account that he calls himself Matthew, but both Luke and Mark use the name Levi. Matthew means gift of God. You know, in the Bible, name changes are notable. Abram and Sarai would become Abraham and Sarah. Jacob would wrestle with the Lord and become Israel. There was that wrestling match there before his bro- he met his brother um, Esau. Simon met Jesus and his name was changed to Cephas or Peter. The one thing I want you to, to consider before we move on here is that sometimes within the pages of Scripture, when there's a change of a name, it reflects the change of that individual's character. Now, one of the things that's happening to you each time you pray, each time you worship, each time you open the Word, each time you take communion, is that your character is changing as well. Because when you, when you, by faith, do these spiritual disciplines, you're acknowledging the presence of God, and it changes your character and your nature. But Danny, is my name going to stay the same? There's a passage in Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, Jesus' words to the church of Pergamum, where he says, He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I find that interesting, plural. Churches. The letters to a specific church in Asia Minor, one of the seven. But then he says, Jesus says, these are Jesus' words, what the Spirit says to the church is. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, on the surface, it seems very unusual that there's a possibility that you and I get to heaven. And when he, he uses the terminology the, to the one who conquers, it's literally saying to the one who remains faithful through, for the church of Pergamon through persecution and difficulty. But for the one who remains faithful... There will be given, he says, hidden manna. Hidden or secret manna, which speaks to sustenance, spiritual sustenance. He also says, I will give him a white stone. The the idea of something being white means righteous, something that reflects God's righteousness. And, And although I'm speculating, maybe a new name here is the result of the work that God has accomplished in you. Through the totality of your life, God is working in your life. And when it comes the time for us to be in heaven, that you will be rewarded with a new nature, with a new character, that you and I, I hope, will be very different. So Jesus is walking down the road, likely with his disciples. And he sees Levi sitting at the tax booth. Historians tell us that it's an elevated platform. It was raised up off the ground where he would sit with a bench and there would be a line of people and he would would examine their merchandise. He would consider their wealth and he would, again, he would tax them. And all of a sudden there's a group of people moving down the street and Jesus surrounded by his disciples and others. And while, while Levi is working, while he is collecting taxes, his eyes meet with Jesus and everything stops. Think about it. 
Levi takes his eyes off of his work, work and he looks at Jesus. As I consider the scene, I see it as being as sacred as anything that would happen in a sanctuary of a church or in this day that would happen in the temple. Jesus is walking down the road. He looks into an individual's eyes and something transpires. Something takes place. Jesus calls to him. One of the questions I wanted to ask you tonight, and obviously this is something for you to think about, in the same way that Jesus would see Levi or Matthew, do you know that Jesus sees you? Do you know that Jesus looks into not only your eyes, but to your heart? Do you know that he sees you? I think one of the greatest tragedies of the day in which we live, possibly because of how busy we can be, is that many of us, from time to time, feel invisible, unseen, and unimportant. As you sit here tonight, do you know that Jesus sees you? Do you know that he sees what you go through? Do you, do you, do you see that the, that the storm in your heart is real to him? But more importantly, not only does he see you, do you know that he cares for you? Do you know that he is the God who enters into our storms and speaks to the wind and the waves, peace, be still? So Jesus acknowledges a man who was disdained by others. But it's more than that. For Jesus says to him, follow me. Follow me. I got home from work and I got home about 1 or 2 in the morning. I worked swing shift from 5 p.m. to about 12.30. And the drive from San Clemente to, to Vista, that's where I lived. And, and, you know, I would clean up and grab a bite and just wait till I got sleepy enough to go to bed. And there was this one night in particular where I had been thinking about eternity. And this wasn't anything that my friends were talking about. It wasn't anything that the guys at work were talking about or the guys on my crew were talking about or even Wanda and I were talking about. But over a month or two, I'd been thinking about what happens to a person when they die. And on this night, unlike any other night, the conviction of the Holy Spirit was extremely strong. I remember feeling hopeless. I remember the hopelessness being rooted in fear because I didn't know. I had many assumptions, but I didn't know what would happen to me when I died. And that night I went into my bedroom. I won't be too long on this. And I remember sitting on the edge of my bed and thinking, Danny, the only thing you ever do, the only thing you ever do is hurt people. I didn't want to hurt people, but you hurt people and you, you use people. And I remember sitting there being very, very sorry and I remember turning around on the edge of my bed, and I remember my wife is asleep. We're two ships passing in the night, to be sure. And on the edge of the bed, I, slide, I turn around and I slide down to my knees, and the first thought that comes into your, my mind is, great, you don't even know how to pray. What are you going to say? And so I'm sitting there. I'm a, I'm a pretty sharp cookie back when I was younger, not so much nowadays. But I remember going to my knees, and I was thinking, I don't know what to say. And so I just said, I'm sorry. 
God, I'm sorry. And then I, would believe, I believed that I was inspired by the Spirit, and I said, I'm sorry for doing this, and I'm sorry for doing that. I was naming these specific things that I was involved with at the time, and I'm sorry for doing this, and I'm sorry for doing this. And then something even more miraculous happened because I started to weep. And I think weeping was more like sobbing. And I cried, and I cried, and I cried until I felt clean inside until the fear subsided. And some of you won't believe me, but when I opened my eyes, there was a dove floating right in front of my face. I went to bed that night, and for the first time in my entire life, I slept. I slept. When I got up in the morning, I was a changed man. God had changed my nature because, my friends, Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus rescues sinners. Jesus pursues sinners. Jesus eats with sinners. Jesus is identified with sinners, not sanctioning their sin, but so that he might save them and rescue them as he did to me so many years ago. It's important for you to know that the words follow me, that this calling is rooted in Eden, the Garden of Eden. It came in the form of a breeze moving through the branches of trees, an invitation from God to man to come be with me, follow me, walk with me, share life with me. And for some of you who are here tonight or some of you who are watching online, God is calling for you to come and be with him. You, you might be like Danny and say, well, I need to stop doing this and I need to stop doing that. And Jesus said, just come with me. Come be with me. Come know me. And I will change and transform you from the inside out. Follow me. But there's more to that. I know it sounds like the guy on TV. No, but wait, there's more. This is an invitation to what we call discipleship. Not only is it a call to be in his presence, but it's to follow Jesus. That is to follow the path that he will lead us on. And for some of you in this room, the turmoil in your life is related to this tension of wanting to follow Jesus. And yet when you follow him, you're going to turn away from some other things in your life. Not because you think you're better than them or better than that, but because he's leading you in a different direction. And so he tells Levi, follow me. Again, a call to discipleship, to walk the same road as Jesus walked, inferring that prior to accepting Jesus, Jesus' call, man chooses to go it alone. Man chooses to be strong enough in his own strength, to be smart enough in his own intelligence, to be wise enough in his own wisdom. And Jesus said, forsake all of that, follow me, and I will give you that and more. Tonight, God is calling for you to follow him. And some of you maybe have done something that you're ashamed of. He will forgive you. He will wash your sin away. He will give you a new life. Oh, when I woke up the next morning, I couldn't believe it. It's like a, the Wizard of Oz, and, and, and all of a sudden everything goes from being in black and white to being in color. My wife said, what happened to you? And I said, I don't know. I don't know. She goes, 
but you're not the same as you used to be. And I go, I don't know, is that good or is that bad? No, she goes, no, it's an improvement. And you're not there yet, homeboy, but it is an improvement. He gives you a new life, but more importantly, he gives you a new eternity. He gives you a new destination. And he rose and followed him. And Matthew would ask you tonight, will you follow Jesus? Some of you have a difficult decision to make in your life. And it's not whether you you make this business decision or this career decision or this relationship decision. Although those are very important, I'll give you that. But the question tonight is, will you first follow him? Will you first follow Jesus and then allow these other decisions, these other life choices to fall into order? In Luke's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 28, his, his account, his parallel account says, in leaving everything, he rose and followed him. It's important to see what's in view here for Matthew. It wasn't in view for the fishermen. It wasn't necessarily in view for the zealot, but it was, this was Matthew's experience, that he chose to leave everything. His decision is not just in the moment, but for the rest of his life. This is a lifelong decision. His commitment is evident in that he was willing to leave his business behind. In verses 15 and 16, we see the calling of outcasts. And as he reclined, I want you to picture in your mind there in Levi's house, Matthew's house, there is a horseshoe table. It's about maybe, maybe a foot, if that, off the ground. And there are people laying all around the perimeter, the outside of the horseshoe. And servants are coming and giving food and giving beverage. And, and when you reclined at the table, you were near other people. You were touching other people. Jesus was laying beside not only his disciples, but other sinners other tax collectors. And many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Listen to these words from Mark. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, not to him, but to the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? In the Eastern mind, to have a meal with somebody is to be intimate with them. It's to be close to them. You and I, we'll have a burrito. We'll try the, the verde sauce and the red sauce, the, the spicy and the mild. We'll grab the chips and the salsa, Miguel's, the cheese sauce. Oh, my goodness. Talk about a spiritual experience, the, the queso sauce, and, and, and we'll talk about our lives. But in the Eastern world, when you sat down to eat with somebody and you reached to grab a piece of bread and you tore it, that was symbolic of, of as in the same way that the bread was one loaf, was one piece, to shatter it and to share it with somebody else meant in the same way that this bread was one, you and I are one. There's an intimacy in a shared meal. A guest was considered a close friend. Do you see what Matthew's doing? He's saying, Jesus is my friend. Jesus is my family. There's nothing casual about the scene that Mark describes. Take note of this, because we're told that the, ta- that, that, 
that of the tax collectors, Mark says in verse 15, that there were many who followed him. Again, following being descriptive of discipleship. Some might ask, well, Danny, was it really wrong to collect taxes because some of these folks were, this is a business that they were in. Listen to the words of John the Baptist, because I don't think so. In Luke chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, it says, tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, that again, John, teacher, what shall we do? There was a conversion in their life, right? They were repenting of their sin. They were turning away from their sin. And so they're asking John, what does this mean? What does this mean to me? And he said to them, verse 13, collect no more taxes than you are authorized to do. He said, if when you collect taxes, you add or pad the amount to go into your wallet or into your pocket, he says, just stop doing that. He didn't tell them stop collecting taxes for Rome. He said, don't get rich off of it. So then the disciples are here at Matthew's house. I'm thinking the guest list made them a little edgy. Interesting to think that sometimes following Jesus can put us in an uncomfortable situation. The scene captures the essence of what evangelism is. If you view evangelism, and this is fine if this is what you do, as going out on the street corner and talking to people, that's great. Please do that. But evangelism will likely happen. Well, let me tell you about my first trip to church. So Wanda and I go to church. I feel very uncomfortable. We're in metal chairs. People are hugging each other. My people don't hug people. People are hugging each They're like turning in their Bibles. They know where everything is. I'm like, you know, like looking in the table of contents. Immediately after service, a man comes up to me and he says, I want to invite you and your wife to lunch. And I was floored. You really don't even know me. And you're inviting me to lunch? So Wanda and I, we have a very, you know, one of those husband-wife's discussion in the parking lot. I go, I don't know him. You don't know. And I don't know what to do. What should we do? You don't want to offend anybody, right? There still was a question as to whether we would return to church or not. So we ended up going to his home, and we had a meal with him. And when we got in the car from the drive from Fallbrook, returning to Vista, listen. Wanda goes, what do you think? And I said, I don't know what they talk about. I don't know what they sing about. But I feel like they love us. I don't know what it says in that book. I don't know how they live their lives. But for the first time in my life, I feel loved. Jesus. My friends, he's the friend of sinners. The scribes and the Pharisees had contempt for anybody who would associate with known sinners. Their question to the disciples comes from individuals who comes from individuals who create a wall around their lives to keep themselves from becoming defiled by other people. The mentality is called circle the wagons. I won't explain that to you. When I teach that to young people, I have to explain what that means. But 
for those of us who have watched Westerns, circling the wagons means we're on the inside, they're on the outside. Don't allow them to get too close. I understand that mentality, but it's driven by fear. And if we could stop for a moment and see people the way Jesus sees people, if you would have seen an angry young man walking down the street with an inappropriate vocabulary, and you saw beyond the anger and the meanness, you would have seen a young man who was hurting. As I wrapped up high school, a number of people you know, were happy to tell me, Danny, we're almost done. There's nothing that's going to come of your life. And although I didn't, have the, I didn't have a way to articulate it, you don't know how many times I sat in my car after school and said, if there was one teacher who would pull me into their classroom, if they knew what my home life was like, if there was one teacher who would show interest in me, one coach, I wrestled in high school, if there was one coach, if, if, there was one, if there was just an adult who would pay attention to me, I think my life would have turned out different. Now, granted, I was like 18 years old when I had that conversation with myself. But if you and I would at the very least pray for the Matthews in our lives, oh, what a difference might happen. Let's go ahead and wrap this up in verse 17, where Jesus, we have the calling out of the proud. Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not call, come to call the righteous, but sinners. It might be helpful to consider a word of warning from Matthew's gospel. You'll see on the screen from Matthew chapter 9. This is included in the text, at least from Matthew's perspective. So Matthew chapter 9, verse 12. Again, this is Jesus' warning so 9, verse 12 says, But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And some Bibles have to repentance. There's a couple of thoughts here and we'll be done. In general, the religious leaders at this time had no trouble diagnosing sin in others. They had no problem. They had maybe even what would be considered a special gift to look at another individual and say, well, you do this and you do that, or you don't do this and you don't do that. But the reality is they couldn't see sin in their own lives. And although they may be correct, their, their estimation of things may be dead on, may be accurate. What they couldn't see in their own lives was spiritual pride. They thought because they followed old age tradition that they were right with God. But let me tell you something. Spiritual pride is as bad as any other sin. It causes one to look down on others. It causes one to look down on other people. And I believe, you can come up and talk to me after the service, I'm happy to talk to you. I believe that spiritual pride, the sin of spiritual pride, is as offensive to God as any other sin that we might easily point out in the life of another person. 
Jesus tells these men, again in this calling out of the proud, tells these men well-versed in the Old Testament scriptures that they didn't know what they thought they knew. He says, go learn what this means. This is an idiom that teachers would use for their students as a means of correction. Hear Jesus saying, I want you to hear Jesus saying tonight that being loving to a sinner is more pleasing to God than, be, than, than pretentious religious practices. Because God never gives up on us. That is the reason we should not give up on others. We close with a word of application. This week, I want you to think about three things. I want you to know tonight as you leave here that you are seen by God. You are seen by Jesus sees you in the same way that he saw Levi, in the same way that he saw Matthew, in the same way that he saw Peter, in the same way that he saw James and John. Jesus sees you tonight, and he has love for you, empathy for you. The second thing I want you to consider is that Jesus is calling you. Tonight, Jesus is calling you not to point out your weakness, not to point out your sin, but to draw you to himself so that he might forgive you, so that you might, and this is the third point, you might be healed. When I speak of healing, I'm speaking of spiritual healing, or you might be saved. I changed that at the last minute, doggone it, but that you might be saved or redeemed. Jesus, friend of sinners, would you join me in a word of prayer? So tonight, Father, we thank you that through Mark's gospel, we have an opportunity to see the heart of God. I desire mercy. I, this is God's words to Israel. I desire mercy. I desire mercy. I desire mercy for you. I desire mercy for others. I don't want ritualistic sacrifices. I want you to be kind to each other, understanding with each other, forgiving of one another. I want you to help people who've walked into your church for the first time feel comf comfortable, welcomed, and loved. Lord, we thank you for our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.